Welcome to the third season of Pushing Pediatrics, the ultimate podcast for pediatric physical therapists studying for the pediatric board specialty exam. We remain dedicated to providing guidance and support to pediatric physical therapists looking to excel in their field. We understand the challenges you face while studying for and passing the certification exam, but with our expert guidance and unwavering support, we are confident that you can achieve your goals. So let's dive into this journey towards becoming a board certified pediatric physical therapist together. Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put in the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content, and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we've stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram or Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics or send us an email at pushingpediatrics at gmail.com. Welcome back. We are here tackling juvenile idiopathic arthritis or JIA. We're going to go with JIA from now on just because it's easier This is a good one. We touched a bit on JIA during the article review episode from week three. That was a subscription only episode. So if you want access, you need to subscribe. We also outlined another article from 2017 specific to JIA in that episode. I will go ahead and post the reference for that in the episode notes. Chronic arthritis in childhood encompasses a variety of diseases, with JIA being the most prevalent. JIA leads to joint swelling, pain, and limited mobility, which significantly could impact a child's activities. Box 9.1 in Campbell provides a list of common clinical signs of JIA. Some of the primary manifestations are going to be things like joint swelling, pain, stiffness, morning stiffness muscle atrophy, weakness, poor muscle endurance, and then acute or chronic iridocyclitis. So that iridocyclitis is an inflammation of the iris and the ciliary bodies inside the eye. You'll see this in a few different situations, including infections, autoimmune diseases, or trauma. So symptoms of this usually include eye pain, redness, sensitivity to light, blurred vision, and increased tear production. JIA is not a singular disease, but an inclusive term for various forms of arthritis that start before the age of 16, last more than six weeks, and have no known cause. I'm going to repeat that again for you because it is super important. JIA is not a singular disease, but an inclusive term for various forms of arthritis that, remember these, start before the age of 16, last for more than six weeks, and have no known cause. It's really referred to as an exclusion diagnosis, meaning it's diagnosed by ruling out other possible conditions, and the diagnosis relies mainly on clinical evaluation. So sometimes it takes time to determine the diagnosis as a clear understanding as the disease evolves. Within the initial six months of the disease, the different types of JIA, including systemic arthritis, 
oligoarthritis, polyarthritis, enthesitis-related arthritis, and psoriatic arthritis are distinguished by specific signs and symptoms observed. And you'll see these differentiated in table 9.2 from the book. Within the first six months of the disease, specific signs and symptoms can help us distinguish between these different types of JIA. So the main types that we think it's important to know are systemic arthritis, oglioarthritis, and polyarthritis. In oglioarticular arthritis, which affects 27 to 56% of children with JIA, the majority of being girls between the ages of two and four, this low-grade inflammation occurs in four or fewer joints, four or fewer joints in oglioarthritis. The knee is the most commonly affected joint, followed by the ankles and the elbows. The hip and small joints of the hand are usually not involved in the inflammation process. Swelling in the affected joints is present and may be accompanied by warmth, but pain is not always experienced. Unlike other forms of JIA, systemic signs such as a skin rash or a high-grade fever are uncommon in oglioarticular JIA. However, about 30% of these children will have that iridocyclitis. Polyarticular JIA refers to arthritis that affects five or more joints. So I like to think about this as like poly means many. That's a great way to kind of think about five or more joints. And then this can be further subdivided into the rheumatoid factor positive and rheumatoid factor negative polyarthritis. The rheumatoid factor positive form typically peaks at two to four years of age and again at six to 12 years, predominantly affecting girls again. And then in contrast, the RF negative polyarthritis usually starts in late childhood or adolescence. Arthritis in polyarticular JIA is symmetrical and affects both large and small joints, including the cervical spine and TMJ joints. The affected joints are typically swollen and warm, but rarely red. Systemic symptoms seen in polyarticular are usually mild. You may see that iridocyclitis that we talked about before. Then last, we'll talk about the systemic JIA, which occurs in 4 to 17% of cases. It's not really specific to any age group or gender. It's characterized by a high-grade fever of 102.2 degrees or higher that appears once or twice daily for at least two weeks. It's accompanied by a transient rash. The rash is often seen on the trunk or limbs, but can also appear on the face, palms, and the soles of the feet. And then there's other systemic signs, so things like pleuritis, which is that inflammation in the lung lining, pericarditis, which would be inflammation of the membrane surrounding the heart, myocarditis, which would be inflammation of the heart muscle, hepatosplenomegaly, which would be that the spleen being enlarged, and then lymphadenopathy, which would be the swelling of the lymph nodes as well. Systemic symptoms may precede arthritis by several months or years, and while they may subside, they can reoccur during periods of an exacerbation of the arthritis. So I would recommend, I think for me, this was helpful during the studying was to like make a little cheat sheet on my daily study guide, just to kind of 
understand the different characteristics of those three main types of JIA because you never know if you're going to get a question on it and have to differentiate between the three, especially if you get like a case study type of thing. So we're going to do a really quick breakdown for you here. Oligoarticular JIA affects a few joints with low-grade information. Polyarticular JIA affects five or more joints and can be RF positive or RF negative. And systemic JIA is characterized by high-grade fever and systemic signs like a rash and organ inflammation. So if you just remember those few key things, that'll help you to be able to decipher if you do get a question on it, what type of JIA they might have. So pharmacologic therapy is an important component of treatment in JIA. We need it to hopefully induce remission or control the arthritis to prevent further joint erosions as we're managing extra articular manifestations. These are the things like the fever or the rash or the lymph node swelling or the liver swelling. Severe or persistent cation Severe or persistent cases often require a combination of aggressive drug therapies, typically started early in the disease. So non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like naproxen, tolmetin, and ibuprofen are commonly used as that first line of therapy, though GI irritation can be kind of a potential side effect. Methotrexate is the most frequently prescribed DMARD, which is the disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drug for children with poly-JIA and systemic JIA. So typically administered orally once a week. In cases of inadequate response to that or adverse effects with oral dose, there is a sub-Q injection option that can be used. When you're on methotrexate, you need periodic blood counts because it's liver toxic. So you need to kind of check the liver enzymes to make sure that you're not getting any of that liver toxicity. So the long-term health risks of methotrexate in children is not really known yet. For patients with a poor prognosis who might not respond to methotrexate, you could also maybe have a kid that's on more of a biologic medication, and those are targeting tumor necrosis factors, which is a cytokine involved in inflammation. Glucocorticoid drugs, so those heavy steroids, are sometimes used, but they are really reserved for children, mostly who have systemic JIA, who do not respond to any other therapies. Steroids have a very great anti-inflammatory effect, but they don't change anything about the disease course or the duration. And long-term oral steroid use is just, it leads to a lot of negative adverse effects. So you can have things like Cushing syndrome, myopathy, growth disturbance, osteoporosis, fracture problems. It can lead to diabetes mellitus, obesity, and then just increased susceptibility to infection. So the cardinal signs of inflammation in JIA include swelling, pain at the end range of joint motion, stiffness, and loss of full range of motion. Swelling around a joint could be caused by things such as intraarticular effusion, synovial hypertrophy, soft tissue edema, or periarticular tenosynovitis. The joint's bony landmarks may enlarge due to increased blood supply to the inflamed area. Swelling and protective muscle spasms also will contribute to pain. Chronic inflammation can lead to structural and functional abnormalities in the joints. 
such as ligamentous laxity, synovial overgrowth, joint instability, erosion of articular cartilage and subchondral bone, alignment issues, osteopenia, and osteophyte formation. Joint contractures can result from intraarticular adhesions and fibrosis of adjacent tendons. Various joints may be affected in JIA with the hip, knee, ankle, wrist, and small hand joints commonly involved. Table 9.3 outlines in detail the joint and soft tissue restrictions and clinical adaptations in JIA. Yeah, that chart can look a little bit overwhelming. Um, I would definitely just review it and think about it. I think it's a little bit more like obvious than it might first seem, but it's kind of just thinking about the common signs of restrictions or what we're going to see at different joints particularly. So muscle structure and function can be affected in various ways. In the acute phase of the disease, the muscles around the affected joints may experience spasm and hypertonus, which is also known as contraction deformity. As the disease progresses to the subacute and chronic stages, this muscle atrophy and weakness become more noticeable, particularly in the muscles near the affected joints. So this weakness may even occur in distant areas of the body and can persist even after the arthritis has gone into remission. Growth disturbances and postural abnormalities are also a concern with JIA. When the disease is active and systemic steroids are used for a long time, it can lead to a slow of linear growth. However, during periods of remission, accelerated growth may occur if the growth plates are still open. Delayed puberty and the appearance of secondary sex characteristics can also be observed. Inadequate bone formation, low bone turnover, and depressed bone formation may lead to osteopenia, which then could increase the risk of bone fractures. The inflamed joint may experience increased blood supply, leading to accelerated growth of ossification centers and bony overgrowth. So making sure we're doing a good postural assessment is going to be very important. Therapists need to carefully observe the child's posture and sitting and standing, looking at things like hip and knee flexion contractures, genuvalgus, and foot deformities. Physical fitness is often limited in children with chronic conditions, including JIA. We talked about this in our Utrecht article review, so refer back to that if you want some more information on it. Physical fitness encompasses different components such as health-related fitness and performance-related fitness. So some examples of health-related fitness include peak oxygen uptake and performance-related fitness includes muscle strength, anaerobic capacity, motor fitness, and body composition. Again, we talked about this in last week's episode, so make sure that all of that sounds familiar. And if not, go back and listen, read the article yourself refresh yourself on it. Make sure that these are terms that you are familiar with. In children with JIA, the VO2 peak is typically lower compared to their healthy peers. Additionally, the heart rate response during exercise is lower in children with JIA compared to healthy children. This seems more related to hypoactivity caused by the disease symptoms. So this seems to be related to the fact that they're probably just not doing as much because of all of the other symptoms we've already talked about. 
There are a lot of physiological factors such as anemia, muscle atrophy, generalized weakness, and stiffness, which are just going to further limit the child's performance. This all highlights the importance of addressing physical fitness and ensuring appropriate interventions and support to make sure that we're able to improve their overall well-being and functional abilities. When examining a child with JIA, we need to consider the stage. In the acute stage, we could see functional limitations and compensatory motor behavior, which can change or disappear with proper disease control. It's really important to note that physical therapy intervention may be limited in children with partially controlled or uncontrolled disease. Regular communication between the pediatric rheumatologist and the physical therapist is very crucial during this stage. We must also take into account the child's age, motor development prior to the disease onset, and cognitive and emotional development. Monitoring joint motion and integrity is essential as a loss of range of motion may indicate joint damage and an increased risk of functional decline. There are two standardized outcome measures available to guide intervention and assess changes. So two notable measures to add to your outcome measures guide are the Juvenile Arthritis Disease Activity Score and the Juvenile Arthritis Multidimensional Assessment Report. The Juvenile Arthritis Disease Activity Score scores disease activity on multiple levels, including active joint count, physician and parent global assessment, and erythrocyte sedimentation rate. It provides a composite score. On the other hand, the Juvenile Arthritis Multidimensional Assessment Report is more of a parent or child report measure that rates various dimensions related to well-being, pain, functional status, quality of life, disease activity, joint disease, and more. Uh, that one will generate an overall score as well. So these outcome measures are going to allow for quick and reliable monitoring of the disease status and outcomes. Table 9.4 in the book goes through some more relevant outcome measures for JIA, and it'll outline them by impairment level, activity level, or participation level. It's just important to at least be somewhat familiar with these uh, outcome measures, just so then that way, if for whatever reason you're asked a question on a test as part of a case study, that you could be able to decipher between some of the different ones and choose the most appropriate one, you don't need to necessarily know every single item on every single outcome measure, but you want to be able to decipher between them if you were asked a question on it. Pain plays a significant role in limiting the activities of children with JIA and can also impact how well they adapt to the disease. There are different types of pain that occur in JIA. Acute pain can result from inflammation or medical procedures, while chronic pain is believed to be caused by abnormal joint loading during physical activity due to soft tissue restrictions and muscle imbalance. There are various tools available for pain assessment depending on the child's age. These are a must-know for the exam, so put them on that daily study guide. Make sure that you're going over them. For young children, the Wong-Baker Faces Rating Scale and the Oucher or E-Ouch Multidimensional Pain Diary are useful. For children over the age of seven years, numeric rating scales, horizontal word graphic scales, or visual analog scales can be used. The Pain VAS is also included in the Childhood Health Assessment Questionnaire. The Varney Thompson Pediatric Pain Questionnaire is a comprehensive assessment tool that considers both parent and child reports. 
So again, make sure that you're familiar with these, you're familiar with the ages that they're recommended for use, and make sure that if you're asked a question on it, you're able to decipher between all of those outcome measures. So something kind of specific to GIA is that active joint count. I kind of mentioned it really briefly above. So when examining joints, consider the stage of the disease, acute, subacute, or chronic. Each stage has its own characteristic joint expressions. In the acute phase, there's joint inflammation, fluid buildup, ligamentous laxity, and joint instability. In the subacute and chronic phases, there is a prolonged inflammation leading to joint swelling, loss of joint integrity, erosive cartilage changes, and loss of joint alignment. During joint examination, it's important to pay attention to these disease expressions. Muscle strength and anaerobic capacity are important components of performance-related fitness, which we want to assess. It's essential to assess and monitor muscle strength and endurance by observing a child's performance of age-appropriate motor tasks or activities of daily living or in older children using manual muscle testing dynamometers. Dynamic muscle testing is useful for establishing a baseline of strength and monitoring progress as long as there is no sign of joint inflammation or damage. Assess this by determining the maximum weight a child can lift for a specific number of repetitions. They review the six-minute walk test as another commonly used fitness test in different patient groups, including those with arthritis. This one comes up very frequently, so make sure you're familiar with it. This test measures how much distance a child can cover by walking in six minutes. There's a debate about the validity of this test in assessing aerobic fitness in children with arthritis. Studies have shown varying correlations between walking distance and measures of aerobic fitness. Nevertheless, the six-minute walk test can provide useful information about functional exercise capacity in children with arthritis and can help determine exercise intensity during aerobic training. Remember also that it is a test that can be used to determine change as well. So if you do this at the beginning during an evaluation and then you retest six months later and it's improved, that gives us some great information about the child's capacity, right? So I think it can still be really helpful. In terms of participation, they discuss an important outcome measure here that comes up a lot as well, the CHAQ, so that's the Childhood health assessment questionnaire is one that I think that you should definitely know. This evaluates physical function by measuring the difficulty experienced by a child in performing different activities. It has a really broad age band, so it's for children 1 to 19. Um, so this is definitely a good one to know for that. Um, the CHAQ consists of 30 activities organized into eight categories and higher scores indicate greater disability. You could also assess things like morning stiffness, pain intensity, and general health status using visual analog scales. All right, so we're going to wrap up this episode by discussing the role of PT and JIA. We've said this multiple times in this episode, which means clearly that it's important, but the focus of PT during the acute stage of the disease is different from that during the subacute and chronic stages. 
And remember, you might not always see a kid during the acute stages if they're part of a larger like rheumatology clinic where they're going into maybe a children's hospital that has a big department. They might have their own PT on staff there that's doing some of the acute therapy or the acute recommendations. And then you might be seeing them on more of a outpatient basis later. However, we still need to know and think about that because the test isn't going to test which setting you work in. It's going to be very comprehensive. So if you're presented with a question or a case study related to JIA, it's important that you understand which stage of the disease the child is in. So according to Campbell here, while in the acute phase, efforts are going to be focused on things like maintaining and preserving joint function. And then in the subacute phase and the chronic stages, the focus is going to be more on restoration and compensation of function and activities. In the acute phase, we're going to be focused on maintaining and preserving joint function. And in those subacute and chronic stages, we're going to be more focused on restoration and compensation of function and activities. Box 9.2 illustrates the physical therapy intervention in JIA and is actually just an amazing summary of everything you need to consider with JIA. So definitely reference that. The management of joint health in children with JIA involves physical measures, including cold therapy, exercise, and occasional splinting. Balance, rest, and exercise are important for maintaining joint health and function. Physical therapy interventions for JIA focus on preserving joint motion, muscle strength, aerobic and anaerobic capacity, pain management, and promoting activity and participation. Muscle strength training, including strengthening exercises targeting the muscles surrounding the effective joints, can be beneficial. During the acute joint inflammation, isometric exercise can be used to maintain muscle bulk and strength. Aerobic capacity is recommended at least two times a week with moderate to vigorous intensity for 45 to 60 minutes per session. Anaerobic capacity training, such as high-intensity interval training, may be effective for children with JIA. Pain and fatigue management strategies include physical conditioning, endurance training, balance and proprioceptive exercises, and psychological interventions such as cognitive behavioral therapy. Physical therapy also addresses self-care activities, functional mobility, and participation in school and recreational activities. Modifications, adaptations, and assistive devices may be necessary to support independence and optimize function. So make sure that if you do have a case study or if you have a kid in your practice with JIA, that you're making sure that all of those modifications, adaptations, and everything is individualized towards that child. Regular physical activity and participation in physical education and recreational activities are encouraged with consideration for individual limitations and precautions. So that might be a great opportunity for if you're a school-based therapist to push into phys ed class and assist the gym teacher um, or if you don't, if it's not an adaptive physical education teacher, just give them strategies on how you can adapt some of these activities to best improve the child's independence with uh, phys ed. And we mentioned 
psychological interventions and cognitive behavioral therapy. Obviously, as physical therapists, we're not doing those. But this, again, when we talk about looking at the whole child, if you're seeing a child and you feel like they have severe limitations regarding pain or that maybe we're having trouble doing certain things because we're having so many other difficulties, this might be a place where you need to reach back out to their primary physician or talk to family about considering adding that in as an intervention for them. So that way we're helping them address that whole child. And then something to go off of that too, just uh, because I was thinking about it with physical education, we did get a question um, a few weeks back about um, as physical therapists, what kind of uh, support can we provide in physical education and what is like what is appropriate for us to be able to do. And we're able to collaborate. We're able to push into physical education um, classes and, you know, plan and assist with the gym teachers, but we can't run a physical education class ourselves or an adapted physical education class as physical therapists, unless you have, you know, another certification on top of it. But just as physical therapists, we should not be running those physical education classes. Ooh, that was a good, good, good reminder. So again, kind of circling back, box 9.2 from Campbell. I definitely would review and understand that. The ebook has two associated case studies, and those would also be an amazing way to kind of wrap up your studying on JIA. Make sure you review this episode memorize box 9.2, and then dive into the case studies from the book and kind of tie it all together. All right. So moving away from JIA to spinal conditions, which is chapter 10 in Campbell, we're going to go through all of the main spinal conditions with you today. Um, Some surgical treatments that we'll go over and summarize, but the book has a lot more information than we're going to provide to you today, especially some of those nitty gritty details. So we're definitely going to encourage you to read through the chapter. At the end of the chapter, it also has the CPG for low back pain applied to pediatrics. So definitely be sure to take a look at that as well as low back pain is starting to become more prevalent in the pediatric population. Starting off with one everyone is obviously familiar with is scoliosis. So as of 2019, there's only 15 states that mandate screening for scoliosis. The physical examination for scoliosis is going to include assessment of general alignment. So we're going to look for shoulder and pelvic symmetry, spinal alignment, using something like the Adams forward bend test, looking at trunk compensations. So maybe looking at dropping a plumb line and then checking out the leg length measurement. I feel like leg length measurements are oftentimes my first indication during an assessment where I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I want to also look at the Adams forward bend test. I will also say this is kind of separate from the test, but there's lots of apps out there now that actually give you like a scoliometer, which is the thing you can, when they're doing the forward bend test, you can kind of use your iPhone and put it on the top with these apps and it can kind of give you a measurement. I'm not saying it's perfect, but it kind of, again, is just another way for me to to get just a little bit more information and maybe be able to reach back out to a doctor if I really feel like this kid needs to maybe have some images taken. 
the atoms forward bend test, like we kind of mentioned before, is going to measure the magnitude of the rib hump if it's present. And then, like I was just saying, radiographs are going to be your best way to determine the location type and magnitude of the curve. And then also that skeletal age. So helping us get a lot of information about where we're at in the scoliosis, if there is one present. Spinal curvature is measured using the Cobb method, which we should all be familiar with, but the um, book goes into more in depth with it as well. The Cobb angle is considered to be a major predictor from which surgical decisions are recommended by the SOSORT. So definitely put these on your daily study guide because they'll be very helpful to remember if you get a question on scoliosis. So less than 20 degrees of a curve, you're going to just do observation. 20 to 25 degrees observation or a brace. 26 to 45 degrees brace. 46 to 50 degrees brace or surgery, and then greater than 50 degrees surgery. Obviously, those cases where it's, you know, this or that, it's going to be dependent on the patient and then the decision that you come to with, you know, the physician or that the physician comes to. The RISR sign indicates ossification of the iliac apophysis and is the accepted prognostive evaluation tool to determine further growth potential. So again, the book has a really nice picture of this, but it goes through zero to five. Zero to two is skeletal immaturity. Three is progressing skeletal maturity. Four is cessation of spinal growth. And five is cessation of increase in height. So again, there's a really nice picture that kind of helps to explain it. So even if you just take a screenshot of that and put that onto your daily study guide, just so you remember it, it's really helpful to kind of visualize that. This is where I'm going to put in a little bit of a plug for MedBridge. If people don't have a subscription or if you're still thinking about a subscription, because I really, truly feel like the MedBridge scoliosis courses were really, really good and really, really helpful, actually to the point where I just went and retook a couple of them just because I've had a couple scoliosis cases in my practice recently. And I just have felt like I wanted to revisit the courses, remind myself what the recommendations are and kind of figure out how I can best serve my patients. So this is one where I feel like those courses were amazing even just for practice, not just for the exam, but definitely for the exam. And the instructor that does them was just very, very good, very clear. She is a Schroth practitioner. She's a member of SoSort. So they were just, they were great. Anyways, that's my one plug for that. If you feel like scoliosis is something you see a lot in your clinic, or if you really are struggling with it and you feel like you want that to be better for this exam, I definitely feel like those are worth it. Scoliosis is a 3D curve of the spine. I think that that's something to be really thoughtful of and remember that. So to be considered scoliosis, the curvature must be greater than 10 degrees with a vertebral rotation component on the radiograph. We can have structural or non-structural curves. So in a non-structural curve, that's going to be something that fully corrects clinically and on the radiograph. A structural curve cannot be voluntarily, passively, or forcibly fully corrected. 
The magnitude is going to be measured using that Cobb method that Sarah talked about. And the direction of the curve is designated as right or left by the side of the convexity of the deformity. 90% of curves are right. And then left thoracic curves require more extensive evaluation to rule out tumors and maybe other neurological problems. Idiopathic scoliosis is what we tend to think about when we see the term scoliosis. At least that's what I tend to think about. It's a 3D deformity affecting healthy children during their adolescent growth spurt that has no underlying pathology. They usually refer to this as adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. There's also other types of scoliosis as well, depending on the age. Infantile idiopathic scoliosis is diagnosed between birth and three years, and juvenile scoliosis is between four and nine years of age. Curves greater than 30 degrees at the onset of the pubertal growth spurt increase rapidly and present a 100% prognosis for surgery. AIS manifests around the onset of puberty, and it makes up for about 80% of cases. The book goes through some newer terminology that's being used to describe scoliosis. So instead of having those three categories, there's just two categories, early onset scoliosis, which is before 10 years of age, and late onset scoliosis, which occurs after 10 years of age. The book kind of goes back and forth between the different terminology. Um, However, a lot of practitioners and families may continue to use the previous terminology, so it's good to be aware of both and what both mean. So congenital scoliosis is a scoliosis that develops in utero around four to six weeks of gestation. It's closely related to environmental and genetic factors. Abnormalities involving other organ systems occur in as many as 61% of patients, so pretty common. Thoracic, you might see some cardiac abnormalities, and then lumbar, you might see some kidney abnormalities. Thoracic insufficiency syndrome may be associated with rib fusions and chest wall anomalies that may occur with this congenital scoliosis. That's defined as the inability of the thorax to support normal respiration or lung growth, and then this is obviously going to result in a lack of pulmonary development. Congenital scoliosis may lead to decreased vital capacity and may develop respiratory insufficiency in their adolescent years. This kind of makes sense, right? It's a severe scoliosis that's present before birth. So we're just not going to have that normal development of the, the lungs and the other structures. Many congenital curves do not progress, but they're at highest risk when the asymmetrical growth does occur. All right, so we're going to go over the surgical management for both congenital and idiopathic scoliosis. Neuromuscular, we're going to go over a little bit later because it's a little more specific to that type of scoliosis. So again, this surgical management that I'm going through right now is just for congenital and idiopathic. Spinal fusion is indicated if the idiopathic curve reaches a Cobb angle of 45 degrees or more. So in the, the book, it says more than 50 degrees, but again, remember there's that bracing or surgery. So 45 degrees or more is what the book is saying here. Posterior spinal fusion is considered to be the gold standard. It's usually postponed until the child has reached skeletal maturity, but it's still important to treat the scoliosis while the child is still growing in general. 
Congenital scoliosis, you tend to treat while they are still growing. So there's an expandable spinal rod technique surgery that's indicated for children without bony anomaly of the vertebrae or rib cage who have uh, curved flexibility. So with this um, expandable rod technique, serial lengthenings occur every six months during the growing years. And there's also a vertical expandable prosthetic titanium rib insertion, which there was an acronym for it, but I figured I would just spell it all out for you. An expansion thoracotomy may be performed on children with congenital scoliosis who have fused ribs or that thoracic insufficiency syndrome that Sheila was talking about earlier. Our role as physical therapists in the acute post-surgical phase includes bed mobility, transfers, dressing, and ambulation. So some standard goals of inpatient PT following a posterior spinal fusion include log rolling and transitioning to sideline to sitting with minimal assistance, ambulating 250 feet with standby assistance, and ascending and descending at least three stairs with a railing and standby assistance, as well as caregiver education. So obviously, like we had talked about, this is just for idiopathic and for congenital scoliosis, um, neuromuscular, we're going to go over a little bit later on. We're going to next go over this non-surgical management. So this is for idiopathic curves of less than 25 degrees, non-progressive congenital curves, curves of non-surgical magnitude of any nature examined every four to six months. In 2016, the SOSORT guidelines stated that in order for non-surgical or conservative treatment to be effective, the patient and the caregivers must be actively involved. Of course, like I feel like we've talked about this a lot. Casting is an option to address early onset scoliosis, a serial casting technique. So mild cases of 60 degrees or less have seen complete resolution if started before the age of two years old and has also shown that it just may delay surgery as well. So orthotic devices are something to look into. So most commonly, we see the TLSO. It's prescribed for skeletally immature children with idiopathic scoliosis who have a RISR sign of 0, 1, or 2, 10 to 15 years of age, and a curve of 25 to 45 degrees. So the amount of time in the brace seems to be the best predictor of success. One study showed a wear time of 12.9 hours a day, even though it's usually recommended at 23 hours a day. Other types of braces to be thoughtful of or to at least maybe take a look at and have an idea in your mind of what they look like is the Milwaukee brace, the Boston brace, the Wilmington TLSO, the Charleston orthosis, and SpineCore. We're not going to necessarily go over each one of these, but again, maybe putting into your Google, take a look at what it looks like and just have that in your mind just in case anything comes up that you would just want to have an idea. And then, of course, exercise. So some examples include the physiotherapy scoliosis-specific exercises, activities of daily living training, corrected posture stabilization, patient education, the scientific approach to scoliosis. So this is a type of PSSE, self-correction and strengthening. And then you also have the Schroth method, which is another type of PSSE, which is personalized exercise protocol for achieving maximal postural correction. 
and then aerobic exercise, yoga, and Pilates. So making sure that you understand though, that like something like the Schroth method, that's a very specific type and requires extensive training to be able to complete those types of exercises. All right. So lastly, we're going to go over neuromuscular scoliosis. So neuromuscular scoliosis is associated with neuromuscular diseases that often have a rapid progression. So it's, they're common in quadriplegic CP, uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and SMA types one and two. The typical curve pattern is a long C curve and surgical intervention includes fusion with instrumentation that is extended into the upper thoracic spine into the pelvis. So this is more so for that non-ambulatory patient with CP, at least that's what the book kind of goes over. The goals for this type of surgery remain the same as in adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. So you obtain a solid arthrodesis to prevent further spinal deformity, correct spinal and pelvic deformity, and obtain postural balance in sitting or standing. Non-surgical management for neuromuscular scoliosis includes clinical observation, radiographic examination, and orthotic management. Also, a well-supported seating system is very important for our kiddos who are non-ambulatory. And the goal in orthotic management is really to provide support directly to the trunk and possibly aid in simplifying the required seating. So something like instead of going with a custom mold, being able to use a standard back if you're able to use an orthotic. Studies have shown that the use of orthotic devices don't tend to have an impact on the curve progression in general for neuromuscular scoliosis. Moving away now from scoliosis and into kyphosis, lordosis, and spondylolisthesis. So kyphosis, that's going to be a posterior convexity of the spine. So normal is 20 to 40 degrees and abnormal is anything over 40 degrees. Congenital kyphosis, this is a rare deformity that's typically progressive and typically requires surgical intervention. And usually without surgery, the progressive natural history will likely lead to paraplegia, respiratory distress, or cardiac dysfunction. So with this, they usually recommend surgery before three to five years of life. And then the surgery involves a posterior spinal arthrodesis, and this can be safely completed in patients even as young as six. So then we also have a postural round back, which this is increased thoracic kyphosis up to 60 degrees, but it's flexible. Exercise is the treatment of choice here. They also will use a Milwaukee brace um, if the kyphosis has progressed beyond 60 degrees. Schuerman's disease is a rigid spine. So remember this when differentiating between postural round back and Schuerman's disease. So postural round back is flexible. Schuerman's disease is more of that rigid spine. So for Schuerman's, onset is typically during the prepubescent growth spurt, becoming clinically apparent around 11 to 14 years. Diagnosis is usually made by radiograph, but the clinical findings are going to be things like tight pectoral muscles, tight hamstrings, tight iliopsoas. You're going to have that increased thoracic kyphosis, and then you'll probably see a compensatory increased lumbar lordosis, and then a forward head posture as well. Surgery can be recommended for curves greater than 70 degrees, which weren't controlled by bracing alone. 
And then orthotic treatment is usually used between 45 and 65 degrees. The modified Milwaukee brace is typically used and they want to see that full time. So 22 hours a day for 18 months. For this, exercises are usually prescribed. They tend to include things like active trunk extensor training, lower abdominal strengthening, general postural exercises, and hamstring stretches. So again, looking at what are the clinical signs we usually see, and then what can we do to have an effect on those. So moving away from the thoracic spine and down to the lumbar spine, lordosis is a posterior concavity of the spine. Excessive lordosis, both fixed and flexible, can be found in a variety of diagnoses, specifically myelomeningocele and Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So you also hear the term spondy all of the time. So I'm going to go over the two different types with you so you can differentiate between them. A spondylolysis is a unilateral or bilateral osseous defect of the pars interarticularis, whereas a spondylolithesis is a slippage or forward translation of one vertebra on another. So I like to think of this because lithesis, like that ending of the word, means slippage. So that's how I tend to remember the difference between the two. Athletes involved in sports with repetitive hyperextension or rotational loading on the lumbar spine are noted to have higher incidences. So gymnastics is always one that's brought up. The patients tend to present with insidious onset of focal low back pain that worsens with activity, particularly with lumbar extension. Increased lumbar lordosis and tightness of the hamstring muscles is a common feature in adolescents with a spondy. Non-surgical intervention includes restroom activity, bracing, rehabilitation, motor control exercises, trunk control, functional strengthening, endurance exercises, and the stabilization exercise approach. Surgery is indicated when there's a failure to improve after six months of conservative care, if there are gait deviations, marked instability of the deficit with slip progression, neurological deficit or radiculopathy, or if there's a hamstring contracture. Surgery is generally recommended for high-grade slippage, three to four. So the book does go over all of the different grades of slippage for you as well, if you want to take a look at those. And then lastly, low back pain, unfortunately, has become more common in children and adolescents in recent years. So that's what I was talking about earlier when I said to go over that CPG that's in the back of the book because they relate it directly to pediatrics. The etiology includes lack of physical activity, prolonged sitting or sedentary activity, poor sleep habits, and biopsychosocial issues. Elevated BMI has also been found to increase the incidence. Some red flags that should be considered when you have somebody who comes in with low back pain include fever, unexplained weight loss, nighttime pain, pain that awakens the child from sleep, neurological deficits, worsening pain over time, and inflammatory back pain. Some predictors of adolescent low back pain include the female sex, negative back pain beliefs, poor mental health status, somatic complaints, sports participation, reduced motor control, reduced muscular endurance, negative behaviors, and an altered stress response. All right, that is everything we have for you today. Make sure to tune in on Friday for our next subscription episode where we are going to work through another practice question for you.
Thank you for tuning in to Pushing Pediatrics today. We hope you found the information shared valuable and applicable to your test preparation and daily practice. Remember, success is a journey and we're committed to supporting you every step of the way. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and share it with your colleagues. Until next time, you've got this.